So morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Words of Charles Dickens describing the years of the French Revolution. But equally, perhaps, words that could be used to describe moments in our lives. We go through the best of times, and sometimes we go through the worst of times, don't we? And this morning, as we continue to explore more about prayer, we're going to consider prayer in the worst of times. So I'm sorry if you've come on top of the world, it's going to be a bit depressing, but hopefully give you something to think about. I'm sure many of us have had moments where we find ourselves just crying out to God in prayers of helplessness, prayers of just real gut-wrenching despair. Whether it's because of a family situation, an illness, just that sense of feeling far from God in your life, and wondering if he still cares for you or if he's ever going to impact your life and speak to you again, or simply because of the circumstances that you found yourself in. We find ourselves sometimes telling God, just do something. Where are you? Don't we? I remember a few years ago uh, sitting on my room floor telling God this, I just can't take it anymore. You just have to do something. You have to sort this out. And God didn't suddenly appear in a flash of light. A voice didn't just come from heaven telling me it was going to be okay. In fact, in that moment of despair, nothing happened at all. But as I wandered around my room that morning, looking for some source of hope, something to distract me from my predicament, I grabbed a book off a shelf that a friend had lent to me, and I don't even recall the name of the book or who wrote it now. But it was the story of a woman who'd gone through a series of life-threatening illnesses. And so because I was feeling miserable anyway, I thought, what the heck, I might as well wallow in my misery a little bit more uh, and read this book. And I sat down and I read the whole book from start to finish. And the book told the story of this woman's pain. For many years, she'd gone through one horrendous illness after another and had been at death's door a number of times during that period of time. She recalls getting to the point of almost giving up on God. Why had he not sorted out her situation? Why had he abandoned her in her moment of deepest need? Where was he when she needed him most? And for me, at that time, and I expect a good number of us here too at one time or another, those questions felt so familiar to me. And yet the woman explained that in her darkness, she came to a realization. She'd always assumed that God couldn't be where she was because God was good and love and hope and joy. And she was not in a place of goodness or hope or joy, or love. And so God felt distant, far off. His job was to heal her and bring her out of her pain, and he hadn't. And so she was angry, and she was in that pit of despair. And yet in that moment, lying on her back in hospital, she realized she did not need to be on the mountaintops to know that God was with her. But he was there with her in her pit, In her prayer of desperation, she looked up and she knew the words of the psalmist to be true. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will be with me. And she wrote this prayer, which resonated profoundly with me in that moment. It says this. If I lift my eyes, I wish only to be high on those hills, exhilarated by breathtaking views and by the achievement of arriving. Open my eyes to where I am, Lord. Your carpet of exuberant riches is not only above me, unreachable, but also beneath my feet, even though I walk through the darkest valley. It was a wonderful moment of revelation for me. When I felt that I could just take no more, Jesus was sat with me. When I felt angry about my predicament, he felt angry with me. Because God was with me in my pit, as well in those places of joy and hope and happiness. He was above and beside and below me. And I just needed to open my eyes and to see it. And it was then too that I recognized again the paradox of being a follower of Jesus. That we're called to share in Christ's sufferings. Jesus even says to his followers, on the one hand, you'll have to take up your cross daily and follow me. And yet he also promises life and life in all its fullness. If you've decided to follow Jesus, you can be blessed and also burdened at the same time, in pain and yet no joy. We can be desperate and helpless and yet have a hope that surpasses all logic. God is with us in our most desperate places and our places of exuberance, the best of times and the worst of times. And so with that sense of hope in hopelessness, let's delve into another prayer, and this time that of Hagar and her son Ishmael that we heard in our reading, a prayer of desperation and helplessness. Now, I think that this uh, part of the story of Abraham, because it's part of the story of Abraham, is not one that is dwelt on in great uh, length or depth. It's a bit of an awkward and uncomfortable part of the story. It's not a pretty scene. And consequently, uh, it's not over familiar to us, I don't think. So let's just remind ourselves what's going on uh, by the time we get to this part of the story. Abraham is a man chosen by God and has been given a twofold promise uh, by him. God says, I'll give you a land and I will make you the father of a great nation. In fact, you will have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And yet Abraham and Sarai are barren. They have no children. So how on earth is God going to fulfill part of the promise when he says, you'll have more descendants than stars in the sky? So Sarai, concerned that Abraham will have no descendants, tries to intervene a little bit in God's plan. She gives her Egyptian slave, Hagar, to her husband, and Hagar conceives a child. But Sarai, despite being the orchestrator of the plan, is consumed by jealousy at this point because she's unable to bear a child. And so with Abraham's knowledge, she mistreats Hagar to the point where Hagar flees from her abusive mistress. Now, for Hagar to choose fleeing into the desert over staying with her mistress, things must have been pretty bad for her at that time in her life. She was a single, pregnant slave with no rights, no money, no property, nothing. 
But God has not abandoned Hagar. And in Genesis chapter 16, we read about how he meets her by a spring, telling her to return to Sarai, promising that she too will have descendants. In that moment of desperation and helplessness, God meets her and he gives her some hope and a promise. And it's recorded in Genesis 16 that Hagar declares that you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Just think on that for a moment. In her moment of desperate need, when she has nobody, she is a nothing. She is an outcast. She declares, God, you are the one who sees me. And so Hagar, returning to Abraham and Sarai, uh, she goes back and she bears a son, Ishmael. And they all go back to living in relative peace and security for a number of years. And some years later, as God had promised all along, Sarah bears a son, Isaac. And it's only when Isaac is weaned and circumcised around the age of three that once more Sarah feels really threatened and overcome by jealousy and declares to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And so here is Abraham stuck between the two women in his life. The woman he loves, Sarah, who's sharing in this promise, this covenant with him, the mother of his son Isaac, and this other woman, Hagar, the mother of his firstborn son, Ishmael. A part of me got to this part of the story and was thinking, you idiot, Abraham, to be honest. I'm not sure you're allowed to say Abraham's an idiot, but I think he was. You know, you got yourself into this situation. Now you've got to get yourself out of it. But remember, God is involved in this story. And this is the God who sees And so once more, God intervenes and gives Abraham the same promise that he gave Hagar when she'd run away as a pregnant slave 14 years previously. He assures Abraham that not only does he have a plan that through Isaac, Abraham's offspring will become a great nation, but also God tells him, I will make the son of your maidservant into a nation too. And that gives Abraham reassurance. And so once more, Hagar, a woman with no rights, finds herself cast out into the unremitting, unwelcome environment of the desert. And she soon soon finds out, as we heard in our reading, that the water and the food that Abraham had given her had run out. There is nowhere to go. There is nothing to do. There is no way out for Hagar. In the Ishmael was probably around 14 years old and a young man, and she a resourceful maidservant. They've probably been wandering around for many, many days without food and water. They are no doubt literally on their knees at this point. Hagar has no resources. She has no means to change her situation and cannot even prevent the child who she's born prevent his death. And yet she's a mother and has endured so much already, and she just cannot bear to watch him die. And so she leaves him by a bush, and she takes herself some distance away, just about far enough, it says, to not hear his cries, not to see him die, not to see him waste away. Hagar's situation is completely desperate. 
She's helpless. She's oppressed. She is a mother, and she's a victim. She's a victim because her situation is not of her own doing, of her own sin. Her situation has come about as a result of Abraham's lapse in faith, that God really would make him the father of a great nation through Sarah. Hence, the father, hence he fathers a child with Hagar. Like many of us, when it comes to trust in God, Abraham's faith had fallen short. And he makes a choice that goes on to have a huge impact on that slave girl, Agar's life. And I wonder if this feels like a familiar situation to some of us. When does our disobedience, our lack of trust and faith in God, have repercussions on other people's lives? We make choices, don't we, that we know perhaps are sinful, that we know to be outside God's purposes. And that choice affects somebody else's life. That little lie that causes someone else to get into trouble. The gossip that undermines somebody's reputation. The ethical or moral choices that we make in our workplace, which have a negative knock-on effect further down the line. The way we do or don't discipline our child, which has an effect on their behavior or their behavior with friends or at school. The choice in a relationship which changes or damages the other person. And on a bigger scale, when do we need to take ownership of our part in the sins of the world? The moments when we turn a blind eye, blind eye to a disaster appeal because it's so far away it won't affect us. And here is my life and my children and my family and my money. Or we choose to vote for a particular political party or in a referendum simply based on which party promises the most for me as an individual, even though we know those policies may have a negative effect further down the line on the most oppressed or the poorest in society. When do we choose not to act or campaign or to pray because we think that someone else will do it or it's someone else's responsibility? Now, I'm in no way suggesting that we all need to do everything to save the world. But in some way, the choices that we make often have repercussions on others' lives. And sometimes we just need to stop, don't we, and check ourselves, our faith and trust in God, and our responsibility as Christians for others locally, nationally, and globally too. So back to Hagar. Here she is. She's cast out in the desert, and she sits down, preparing to die. The Bible says that she's sobbing. She's not quietly weeping in a corner, but she's sobbing, that gut-wrenching cry of a mother who can do no more. She has nothing else to give. Who, she cannot save her son. And some distance away, Ishmael is crying too, crying in his pain and his helplessness. And this scene so reminds me of images we've seen over the last couple of years of refugees, fathers and mothers who are just desperate to save their children, sobbing in their despair and their helplessness. Mothers and fathers who have done everything, taken risks, traveled hundreds of miles, now stuck at borders with nothing and nobody and nowhere to go. And yet we read 
that the God who sees saw Hagar. And he heard her and Ishmael's cry. He'd not forgotten her. He was with her once more in her pit of despair. And God speaks to Hagar, reminding her of the promise he'd made when she'd fled to the desert before, 14 years before. And God says this, Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God does not abandon her. He's faithful to his promise to her and he loves her. What an incredible reminder that God's mercy extends to the oppressed, the downtrodden, the outcast, the brokenhearted, the victim. In the darkest places close to death, God opens Hagar's eyes and reveals himself to her in her moment of deepest need and suffering. He meets her physical need, he provides her with water, and her spiritual and emotional need as he reveals his presence with her. He hasn't abandoned her. And this is Hagar and Ishmael's moment of redemption, when God breaks in and redeems their situation. As Isaiah declares, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. A few years ago, uh, there was a song. I'm sure a few of you uh, will know it. Uh, I didn't particularly like it, but it had a great line in it. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And I'm really sorry if now that tune is in your head. Um, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Now, this doesn't mean that we all just sit back and don't do anything to resolve the difficult situations we find ourselves in, believing that God will make a way so we don't have to. Hagar, I'm sure, will have walked for miles doing everything humanly possible to find water and food for her and Ishmael. She'd been taken to the brink. But part of trusting in God is believing that he will make a way. When it feels there is no possible human solution, when there is no way out, he will provide streams in the desert, trusting in him in the bad times as well as the good. Paul in Romans 8 reminds us of this when he declares, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? There's going to be pain. There's going to be trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness. But none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Because of Christ and his victory on the cross, we can be more than conquerors. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all the hardships, the pain, the despair, we are more than conquerors, not because of what, who we are or what we can do, but through him who loves us. And so a couple of things for us to consider from this prayer, this cry out of, of Hagar's. Firstly, Hagar is not forgotten. God is faithful. Hagar was not forgotten. And our responsibility is to not forget, not forget the desperate, the downtrodden, the brokenhearted, the lonely, those who are struggling in life. I came across this quote uh, this week. It says, the more love sandpapers our hearts, the more it quickens us to suffering. The more love sandpapers our hearts, the more it quickens us to suffering. 
As we know, more of Jesus' love in our lives, his redemption, his forgiveness, this can and should spur us on to ministry and compassion and action. One of the things that's really struck me uh, since I've been at P's and G's is how much the people in this church do to bring help and healing and love and wholeness to the desperate and the lonely. It's really quite striking. And maybe God is nudging you uh, to give some time, some of your energy, some of your skills to stand with the refugee, the outcast, the foster child, the desperate, the lonely, to get involved in some area of transformation or one of the ministries that this church is involved in to show people that they're not forgotten, that God does love them, that there is hope in the darkness, that we have a God who sees. And secondly, God is with us, even in our valleys of despair. Hagar's helpless prayer, this prayer of desperation, can liberate us too. It can liberate us from the loneliness of being in a broken place on our own. We can know, like Hagar, that God is the one who sees. But more than that, that he entered into our suffering with us. We can be liberated to know that God is merciful and compassionate and hears our cry of distress and anguish and he enters into our darkest places. It's okay then to pray one of those, to pray one of those prayers of distress And then to hold on to the truth that God does not and will not abandon you in your place of need. He hears the cry of your heart. And even when our prayers are not immediately answered, or we feel we're being taken to the brink like Hagar was, we can trust that God does see a bigger picture. And it's worth acknowledging too that if you're in that place of despair, It's often the hardest place to trust and to believe that God does see you and will do anything to change your situation. And so it's then that praying becomes an act of will. You do it just because you have to, because there's nothing else left to do. Not necessarily because you want to or that you really believe that God will change it. You do it just because there's nothing left to do. I want to finish today by uh, telling you a story. It's the story of a man called Joseph Scriven. And in 1842, uh, he was an Irish man. He graduated uh, from Trinity College, Dublin. And he promptly uh, met a lovely lady and fell in love with her. She was was from his hometown. On the eve of of his wedding, Joseph's fiancée saddled a horse to go and see him. And tragically, it was one of the last things that she ever did, because a few moments later, Joseph saw his bride riding towards him. But suddenly, as she was crossing a bridge, the horse that she was on uh, bucked, and she was thrown over the bridge and just fell like a ragdoll into the river below. In a blind panic, Joseph, as you would expect, ran down to the water's edge, screaming her name, and he plunged into the icy water, But by the time he reached her, his bride was dead. Heartbroken, Joseph went on to emigrate to Canada. And after some years, he fell in love again. And in 1854, Joseph was uh, due to marry Eliza Roach. But as the wedding drew close, Eliza got ill and the wedding had to be postponed. And in fact, it was postponed uh, a number of times over the next three years. And eventually, Eliza died too. 
And Joseph was once again heartbroken. Yet through the darkest times, rather than turning from God and blaming him and questioning his existence, he found faith and hope and comfort. And several years later, uh, a friend of his found a poem that Joseph had written, and it was in a drawer of his desk. And it became, this poem became one of the best known uh, Christian songs of all time. It's a poem forged out of so much disappointment and pain and darkness, so much sorrow and sadness, but it's full of hope. And I'm just going to read you it to you now as we finish. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen.